Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Brexit Unspun, a podcast that looks at the impact of Brexit on our economy, our institutions and our daily lives. Today, we're returning to a discussion we began last week about food and farming, but this time with a focus on the environment. What is the legacy of EU membership for Britain's wildlife and countryside, and what opportunities might leaving the EU present to correct some of the mistakes of the past? With me in the studio to discuss this is Shahrazad Daneshku, our consumer industries correspondent, and joining us down the line are Dieter Helm, Oxford economist and academic, and Lynn Dix, a conservation scientist at the University of East Anglia. Dieter, you wrote last year that you could think of very little worse than the current regime of common agricultural policy subsidies. Could you outline some of the worst problems you think these have caused for the UK in particular? Well, farming covers about 70% plus of our land. So from an environmental perspective, everything that happens in agriculture is critical to our natural capital and our natural environment. We spend $3 billion directly on subsidising farmers to produce about $9 billion of output. But when you add in all the other costs associated with subsidising farming, probably half of that $9 billion is just direct subsidies. Farmers have responded, as any rational business activity will, to the incentives the Common Agricultural Policy has provided. And in the 1970s, when the greatest damage was done soon after we joined the EU. There was an intensification, a step change in the applications of chemicals, and the drive was to produce as much food as possible, and the CAP incentivised farmers to do that. The result was pretty catastrophic for wildlife in Britain. We lost a great deal of wildlife, and it's not just the obvious visible things like the farmland birds, but all sorts of consequences to the structure of our soils, to our invertebrates, and so on. Now, it's true that since the 1970s, the CAP has got a little less worse, and that's for two reasons. First of all, because having produced these enormous surpluses, the butter mountains, the wine lakes, etc., the EU moved away from direct production subsidies to just paying people for owning land. That had bad consequences for farmers. It just drove up the land prices and made it harder for people to get into the business. But at least it broke the production link. And the second thing was that a part of the subsidy funding was put into what's called Pillar 2. And people keep talking about Pillar 2 as spending on the environment. Pillar 2 isn't actually just spending on the environment. It's spending on rural development in the environment. And some of that money has had some beneficial effects. But at the end of the line, where we are now today, it's hard to argue that the common agricultural policy has produced very much positive for our natural environment and our wildlife. It's led to lots of detriments which go on and live with us. Soil quality is just one of those things, carbon loss and so on and so forth. So the inventory of effects 
pretty much negative, and we can obviously do hugely better for what is an enormous subsidy for what is quite a small part of economic output. So now what would you like to see replace the CAP regime? Well, the obvious line to start, which would be true of any other industry that comes into government's orbit, which is to say, you know, if we're going to spend three billion plus, maybe four billion, whatever, on such a small amount of economic output, we should spend this public money on getting public benefits, not private returns to, for example, the ownership of land. And once you start to say we've got three billion to think about, it's not hard to envisage how we could use that money for the public goods which are related to natural capital and the environment in particular, but not entirely for those purposes. And in recreating a British agricultural policy, the obvious starting point is to decide what you want for the British environment overall. And the government has a commitment to leave the natural environment in a better state for the next generation. The Natural Capital Committee proposed a 25-year environmental plan to set that framework in place. That's to be published pretty soon by the government. And agriculture should fall within the ambit of that overarching environmental framework. And a huge number of things to do to river catchments, to soils, to woodlands, to the uplands, etc., to create a much better outcome and in the process increase economic growth because economic growth is only sustainable if the natural capital underlies agriculture in this case is in good state. So start with a blank piece of paper, take the line of public monies for public goods only, which by the way is something the Treasury set out as long ago as 2005, focus on the framework of the 25-year plan and then within that framework work how best to target what subsidies are to be provided to the agricultural sector to produce the things that are actually valuable to people and valuable to the economy rather than valuable to people just because they happen to own the land. Now, Lynn, at the moment, a quarter of CAP funding is spent on programmes that benefit the environment, such as paying for buffer strips between fields to promote wildlife habitat or to reduce damage from fertilisers. How well are these working and what would you like to see retained? Well, I completely agree that in the middle of the last century, especially the third quarter of the 20th century, what was going on in agriculture was completely disastrous for wildlife and the common agricultural policy was largely to blame. But I think there are some good things about it and I'm not sure that we should lose it altogether. If you take agri-environment schemes, for instance, they are the part of the pillar two that you mentioned, which are focused on the environment and largely focused on wildlife, although not entirely. Whether they work or not depends on your objective. At the moment, about 15% of all agricultural land in the UK, it's a higher percentage for England, but in the UK, 15% of it is under some kind of agri-environment scheme. Now, I was thinking if you got rid of the subsidies completely and you decided to use your three billion just to do good stuff for the environment, one thing you might do, if you ask, what would you do with that money? Well, you could buy land. You could just buy the land and manage it for environmental purposes. And that means either rewilding some of it, going right over to a natural habitat, But for our farmland wildlife in the UK, some of it relies on some level of farmland management, the kind of traditional management. So you'd actually want to leave some of it being managed as heathland, as meadow, as managed forest, so that there's an ongoing management cost. If you just bought it, the average price of agricultural land at the moment, according to Savills, is about £5,000 an acre, which is £12,500 a hectare. 
So if you spent all of the money just buying land, I think you could buy something like 1.2% of all the agricultural land a year with the money. You could probably buy about 12% of it, which is actually similar order of magnitude from how much is currently under agri-environment schemes. So then it becomes a question of whether you can do better than what we do with current agri-environment schemes if you just focus completely on the public good on that land. And I think it's up for debate. In order to answer that, you need to start looking at whether the agri-environment schemes, how well they have done. Have they really worked? Because some of them have been really the best we could do and others of them have clearly not been the best we could do. If your objective with agri-environment schemes, which are voluntary for farmers, if your objective is to improve the general state of the agricultural ecosystem, the farmed environment, then yes, I think there's a very good evidence that they really have worked. There are now tens, if not hundreds, of studies and the general message from them is that the land under agri-environment scheme has more species and more individuals of different animals and plants than land that's not under agri-environment schemes. If your objective is to reverse those ongoing declines in biodiversity that started in the middle of the last century, you know, this long decline in farmland birds, the decline in pollinators, decline in moths, decline in butterflies, if your objective is to reverse those, then we haven't succeeded because the declines are ongoing. You can see, if you look at any of the indices, you can see that the farmland birds continue to decline. For instance, even between 2009 and 2014, the farmland bird index has decreased by 8%. So that's based on the abundance, measured abundance, of 19 species of birds that specialise on farmland. Things like the grey partridge and the turtle dove and the yellowhammer and the linnet. They are continuing to decline. But you could argue that they're not declining as fast as a result of agri-environment schemes, as they would have been if we just let farming go without any effort to improve the way in which farming is done. So we could have slowed those declines, although we haven't reversed them yet, with the common agricultural policy aspects that are supporting the public goods already. With agri-environment schemes, you can also save and completely reverse the fortunes of very rapidly declining species, such as the cell bunting in South Devon, whose demise was turned around by the countryside stewardship scheme. So if you really focus and you, you focus on particular species and you have experts involved in designing the schemes, they can work really well. Turning to you, Shahrazad, in last week's episode, you mentioned that the government has been keeping its plans very close to its chest, but that there are indications that Michael Gove, the environment minister, wants farmers to move away from food production and towards greater protection of the environment. What do we know of the government's plans and when can we expect more clarity? Well, what Michael Gove has been saying is that the same support system, this three billion a year, will stay in place until the lifetime of this parliament, which at the moment is until 2022. But that after that, these subsidies for farmers are going to be harder to justify. I mean, he hasn't used those exact words, but he said that support for farmers can only be argued for against other competing public goods if the environmental benefits of that spending are clear. So he's talking about the environmental benefits in relation to farmers. Now, I think what farmers would say is, you know, we do look after the environment to the extent that we can, but our job is to produce food. And at the same time, the government is saying there are opportunities to increase food production. The UK is only 60% self-sufficient. It used to be 80%. And, you know, farmers would regard their primary job as producing food. But, of course, they do work within the environment that we have. And therefore, I think my point would be that this shift towards environmental schemes and payment for the environment, that's a debate that's been going on within the European Union for years. And that's why we have Pillar 2. But where are the details of the replacement scheme from the government? That's what we don't have. Dieter, do you have anything to add? Yes. 
First of all, there's nothing incompatible with the notion of paying public money for public goods, which seems to me a completely uncontentious proposition. You don't want to pay public money for private goods. There's nothing incompatible with that with aggregate environmental schemes. Indeed, they may figure very strongly in a British agricultural policy. On the food production side, yes, of course, agriculture produces food and there's a market for food and lots of other industries produce things there's markets for. The farmers' lobby groups sometimes go one stage further and say there's some objective in food security that as a national goal, we should have a percentage of our food that has to be produced in Britain. And that sounds very plausible until you think through what that means and think through why don't we do that for cars? Why don't we do that for steel? Why don't we do that for computers? And indeed, if you really want national food security because you're worried about it, you better start by producing the chemicals first because without those, you can't have the security. So there's a whole muddle around food and food security. As in terms of the timetable, actually the timetable is pretty straightforward. The 25-year environment plan is very, very likely to appear in January rather than this November as promised. There's to be an agricultural bill put before Parliament in the coming year. The existing regime stays in place at least until 2020. And I think it would be extraordinary if the government could come out with a complete detailed blueprint of exactly how British agricultural policy is going to work after 2020 or 2022 now. And uh, it seems to me that I'm not in any way interested in defending the government's activities in this area. But actually, there are very few groups in society which could expect this level of public money guaranteed to them for the period right up to the next election. That's quite a big guarantee, I think. So I think some of the uncertainty is somewhat overdone. Shahrazad. I agree with Dieter Helm that the UK doesn't need to be self-sufficient in food, that there's an argument that you can have there about how much food should be produced within the country. But what I would say is it's not only farmers that have been talking about this, but the government itself. The government keeps talking about how British people want British food. And, you know, we had uh, one of the ministers saying that if we can't get the kind of trade deal that we want, we can just simply grow more food at home to feed the population. So it's not an argument that's being put forward by the farmers only. And I think there needs to be some sort of measure by the government as time passes, that as we change the way farmers are paid and the way land is managed, that we are likely to see inefficient farmers being put out of business. And at the moment, there's just no talk of that. It's all, you know, going to be wonderful. We'll have more food, beautiful environment, etc. Lynn, turning to you again, you've touched on the agri-environmental schemes, but much of your research is focused on the sustainable management of agricultural landscapes. Do you think that farmers in the UK are ready to turn away from intensive farming and towards a greater stewardship of the environment? I think there's a lot of signs that that's happening, has been happening for some time, actually. Farmers are very aware now that degraded land isn't productive, that you can't degrade the soil. If you lose the soil, you lose everything in agriculture. You can't continue polluting water. For instance, if you grow fruits or vegetables or beans or even oilseed crops, you need pollinators in your landscape. You can't just not have them because they're important to your yield because they pollinate the flowers. And so there's a growing awareness that the natural environment is actually part of a productive agricultural system. There's another thing I wanted to mention, though, which is one possible objective you might have for agri-environment schemes is to engage farmers and to encourage farmers to take care of the farmed environment. There's emerging social science research now showing that that really has worked as well. 
you can look at farmers who've been involved in agri-environment schemes for up to 10 years, say, and when you interview them, if you interview them before and then you interview them after they've been involved in these schemes, you can detect and you can measure a real change in their attitude to the environment. Farmers who are involved and work with conservationists they certainly get it. A lot of farmers really care about wildlife and they have lots of knowledge. And when the knowledge is shared with conservationists and farmers, you get really good agri-environment schemes. So I think farmers are very much starting to change the way in which they manage land. And this is driven partly by farmers realising what's around them is important and the value of ecosystems, but also by consumers, by suppliers, by retailers. There's a lot of interest in making farming more sustainable, not so degrading, because I think as a society we didn't like what happened in the 20th century in agriculture. There was such a massive loss of things we held dear and beautiful in this country and many other parts of the world. In Eastern Europe, in fact, there's still large areas where that hasn't happened yet. There are still vast areas of beautiful, small, patchy, species-rich meadows which are managed traditionally, which we used to have here and we lost. I think society doesn't want that, and so we are finding farmers, and the farming industry is finding ways to farm more sustainably. And there are various different ways to support that. You could support it through public money for public goods. I think that's one fantastic way that will be effective in the future. You can also support it through consumer certification schemes. Organic farming is one of those. It's actually supported both by agri-environment scheme money and by price premiums and a certification scheme. And it definitely produces farmland that has more species on it. In many ways, it's a more sustainable approach to farming. It creates an issue because in some farming systems, it has lower yields than your more intensive conventional farming. So there's a lot to be learned about how to do organic farming with higher yields, And I think there's a real demand for information and better understanding of the way the agricultural system works now in order to allow farmers to make this move towards being more sustainable but having less impact on the environment. Let me add to a very important point that Lynn's just made. Agriculture, to be sustained through time, requires good soil. It requires good invertebrate populations. It's the ultimate industry that relies on natural capital. And what the evidence suggests is that the incentive structure that we've had under the common agricultural policy has not led farmers to pursue a strategy which has left the soil, the invertebrates and so on in good shape. And therefore, the industry itself is being undermined. And so it's not as if the environment is somehow against food production. Food production relies on a healthy environment. And essentially, when people say, well, you know, the farmer's producing food for all of us, actually, most farmers' businesses are driven by earning those subsidies. It's a very substantial part of their income. And if that's how they're paid, they're paid for owning the land, if they're paid some of the money for the agro-environmental schemes, that's what they'll do. And so the real irony of the common agricultural policy is, if you like, the victims of this system are the farmers themselves. They have got land prices which are way out of line with the underlying production. The entry of young farmers is virtually nil. That's why the EU even has to subsidise young farmers. The average age of farmers is about 60 plus. And the soils they're using, you can read it in the farming press, the soils that they're relying on have been really seriously degraded. So getting out of the common agricultural policy is not only good for the environment in the sort of nature sense, it's absolutely essential for the future sustaining of the agricultural industry itself. That's the natural capital industry of Britain. The natural capital is what they rely on. And the state of that natural capital has been seriously eroded by the operation of the common agricultural policy.
Lynn. I just wanted to say this all sounds wonderful. You can encourage farmers to get more engaged in the environment and good farming becomes something that is looking after wildlife and the environment as well as producing food. But I think there is a danger, which is that the most efficient farms, the ones that will survive most easily if the subsidies are suddenly cut for production or for owning land, are not the ones which take care of the environment. They are the very large, very intensive, very chemical-rich farms which are managed with very large machines, and they are not the ones which look after the environment. They're not the farmers that know their land and know their wildlife. So I think there is a bit of a danger, and we have to be quite careful to make sure we don't lose large areas, for instance, of the fens where there are lots of important birds, over to even more intensive. There is still that trend going on. Well, there's certainly a lot to think about here, and it's a subject that we will be returning to. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Shaherazad, Dita and Lynn, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week for another unvarnished look at what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We hope you'll join us then, and we'd be delighted in the meantime if you wanted to review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. You can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.